Alright, it's back to school time, everybody. So this week on the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast, we are talking about Abraham Lincoln and education. Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me this evening are Rails Butter Nick. What's up, podcast listeners? And Rails Butter Mary. Hey, Rails Butters. So, this, well, actually, today uh, we're recording this on Wednesday the 15th, uh, which I just need to real, do a real quick shout out. Uh, August 15th is Rockford Day, my where we're, I record two thirds of this pod, of the Rails Butters record out of Rockford, Illinois which is in the 815 area code. So happy Rockford Day, anyone who is celebrating today. Uh, but today for both Nick and I was the first day of student attendance at the high school we both work at. So uh, we kind of decided to build an episode around education because it is that time of year when everyone is going back to school and there's that uh, excitement and nervousness and anticipation of what the year will bring for all of our eager learners. So today, this evening, we are talking about Abraham Lincoln and how his education was, what education was like for him, his thoughts on education. Uh, probably talk a little bit about myths around his education and what it was, what it was not. Um, all things educated as it relates to Abraham Lincoln. So, uh, Nick, how'd the school day go? First day back? I uh, only wrote three referrals. Uh, no, just kidding. <laughs> it went fine. It went pretty well, actually. So, uh, as smooth as it goes. It's always weird. They're looking at you. You're looking at them. It's an awkward. It's an awkward thing. And yeah, but it went well. So. Yeah, it's you know a big uh, kind of trend in education is about building relationships and all those kinds of things. So that first day of school, when you have no real relationship with students, is always kind of an interesting one kind of like a really weird first date kind of get to know you thing with 30 kids and most of them are happy to be there some of them hopefully will be soon <laughs> so um it was very fun did, did a lot of folks give you a hard time about your attire today no i dressed up but i mean god i wear a tie for once and it's like national news it, it really was I, wow, I almost, why you, wow. yeah, Nick had a tie in today I almost offered my condolences I was worried that he had lost a family member and had a services to go to or something after work because he looked he looked quite sharp um, very very unreal splitter Nick at, at many times but believe it or not he cleans up pretty nice I don't know I'm not sure about that <laughs> So anyway, uh, I, from what we've seen on social media and the outreach that we've done, uh, the Rail Splitter Nation comes from all walks of life and all professions, um, from all different parts of the world. Um, however, I do think probably the most common profession, um, if we made a chart of some sort of the professions of folks who listen to the show, is probably educators. We do seem to have quite a few educators. Uh, obviously, all are welcome, but... Uh, we wanted to wish the educators who listen uh, a good first day back, a good uh, start to the year, kind of get off on the right foot. 
um, with your students and um, doing what is very, very important work. So talking about Abraham Lincoln and education, uh, I think um, just I kind of want to start right off the bat by just mentioning, I think there's a, um, I don't know if I want to say it's a myth, but it's definitely something that, got bl that gets blown out of proportion, um, which is the level to which Abraham Lincoln had formal schooling. It is absolutely true that he had very, very little formal education. Um, a lot of folks think he had none. That's not true. Um, he did have some, but the fact that he only had some is um, not not unlike any other any other child growing up where he grew up in the circumstances he grew up. Um, the frontier was not public schooling was not something that was prevalent uh, certainly in the rural parts of the frontier outside of big cities. So it would have been it would have been abnormal for a student to go through. A series of eight grades and then some sort of high school um, back in those days it just was um, the public education system was just just barely barely being born was in its infancy for sure um, education was typically something college education certainly was typically something that was more geared toward the elite um, and more toward fields like um, more prestigious areas of the law, not like a frontier lawyer like Lincoln was, medicine and then scholarship and as far as like history and the arts and things like that. So um, not something that Lincoln, um, you know, obviously his public education was rather limited. Um, however, education occurs in many different ways. Uh, so we'll talk about a lot of the different ways in which Lincoln learned, who his different teachers were, both in school and out of school. Um, and I think um, my argument or my position on this is more of he was a brilliant person because of because of his education, even though it wasn't a formal education. Um, and I think talking about his education gives us a very um, unique and telling look in him as a person, um, especially as he may have dealt with a little bit of insecurities around folks who were um, who did have more of a formal education. So starting early, when we're going back to the Kentucky days, Abraham Lincoln, as we know, was born in the Knob Creek area of Kentucky and lived there for about eight years. Um, there's not a whole lot of clear scholarship on what his schooling was like in Kentucky. Um, it has kind of boiled down to looking through the historic record to see whether or not he could read before he moved to Indiana. Uh, there's a couple different accounts that said he probably knew his ABCs, um, and some words before they moved from Kentucky, um, a couple of his um, cousins uh, the, on the Hank, of the Hankses basically said he could not. He had never read a book at that point. Um, it is very unlikely that he did any schooling before the age of eight um, and knew very, very little of uh, reading or writing before the family moved to Indiana. Most of the record of Abraham Lincoln's formal education does come to us from his time in Indiana going to what were called frontier schools. Um, and in those days, frontier schools um, were only open um, if there was a teacher available to work them. And essentially, the qualifications for being a teacher was you could just say that you were a teacher, um, and it was helpful if you could uh, pretend or be able to spout off some Latin um, but teachers would come into town and then the school would operate for that's a while. How, What's that? That's how I got my job. Yeah. 
I speak Latin. And then, e, e pluribus unum. You're hired. <laughs> I was speaking more about the line about being, or just saying I'm a teacher. Yeah, hi, I'm a teacher. Um, which, you know, there's there's a lot of schools of thought nowadays because we have, at least in Illinois and quite a lot of states that I'm familiar with here in the United States, uh, quite stringent licensure procedures that sometimes are um, kind of exclude people who may be very good at, at the job. But that's that's for another day. Um, but these frontier schools, they're actually called blab schools was kind of the what they became known as because the strategy to make sure that the students were engaged in learning uh, was to make sure that they were always speaking. So um, they would make every single thing was a, a verbal response. All of the reading was allowed. Um, and it was not like, I'm going to call on Nick, I'm going to call on Mary, I'm going to call on other students. It was whole class, um, call and answer, and it was very loud, kind of raucous type thing because the theory was that if a student wasn't talking, there was no way to understand. There's no way to know if they were engaged in learning or not. So this became known. These became known as blab schools. Um, and Abraham Lincoln later in life was was pretty well known for reading aloud. Um, and his future law partner William Herndon was actually quite annoyed with this. Um, because Lincoln would, you know, obviously do quite a lot of reading, not just of the news, but of legal cases and affidavits and, you know, testimony and all of that kind of legal stuff. Um, and he would read it aloud, um, and it would annoy Herndon, but Lincoln would always say that he liked to read it aloud because then he would learn it twice because he would say it and he would hear it. Um, so he was saying that it was almost like reading something twice. Uh, so he did carry that that habit of kind of something out of the blab schools for his entire life. Um, one other, um, I think, very uh, important aspect of his education that informs uh, his later life is the fact that his father had almost no education whatsoever and actually had a disdain for education and, and was very much against education and did not want to send his uh, children to school. Um, all he could really do was write his name, um, and they called it bunglingly write his name, was all Thomas Lincoln, uh, all the education that he had. Um, and he was very much anti-education, and there's a lot of historians who believe that that caused a lot of animosity between uh, he and Lincoln um, that kind of grew over time, because obviously you know Lincoln did uh, learn to value education and kind of resent the fact that he didn't have one. Um, although I think a lot of that kind of informs who he ended up becoming uh, as as an adult. I don't know if you all had done any research into the early parts of education that you wanted to the, of Lincoln's education that you may have wanted to add to that. Um, one thing I um, wanted to add is once he learned how to read, he was always an avid reader, um, and he was interested in learning throughout his life. I mean, he went and taught himself. Um, the principles that Euclid had come up with. And that was one of my favorite scenes from the Lincoln movie is when he's discussing that in the telegraph office. Um, and he, I think because his, perhaps because of the way, I don't know, I don't want to say lack of education, but he valued education and he valued learning very much. And it could very well be the way that, you know, how he was sparsely educated that he came to value it, that, Maybe he really learned a lot in those schools, and I think he did. Yeah, I do too. Um, there was there's three known teachers that he had. 
um, in Pigeon Creek, Little Pigeon Creek in Indiana, um, Andrew Crawford, James Sweeney, and Azel Dorsey, but only Dorsey left any sort of reminiscences or remembrances of Lincoln um, and recalling that uh, he came to school with in buckskins and a raccoon cap, which kind of fits right into that whole, you know, the storybook uh, Abraham Lincoln for sure, uh, clutching an arithmetic book and re was remarkable for his diligence and eagerness. Um, so, and really the, the curriculum at that time revolved very simply around reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, and really all they cared about this thing called the rule of three, which was a, essentially a, a method for calculating proportions, was about all of the math that they actually did. Um, and Abraham Lincoln, very famously, um, his earliest surviving composition uh, was scribbled in an arithmetic notebook. Um, and this is pretty famous, um, and I think it's just remarkable that it's the first thing that at least we still have that Abraham Lincoln wrote. And that was, of course, the very famous poem that reads, Abraham Lincoln, his hand and pen, he will be good, God knows when. <laughs> Which is pretty, it's a pretty good turn of phrase for like a nine or ten year old kid. That's awesome. Um, so the school's... Um, uh, um, uh, Michael Burlingame describes the Indiana schools as low-ceilinged, flea-infested cabins with floors of split logs, chimney of poles and clay, and a window of greased paper. Uh, very uncomfortable benches with backs and splinters aplenty, without backs and splinters aplenty, um, and they usually studied aloud um, because that way the teachers knew that they weren't daydreaming. So um, as far as um, any sort of theory on you know, pedagogy or teaching and learning. I don't think there's a whole lot to back that up from modern scholars, but nonetheless, it was his first exposure to school. Uh, grand total, most historians feel that he went to about a school year's worth of school, uh, but it was spread out over a few years, so he would go for a few weeks at a time here and there. It Most folks kind of, um, there's a consensus around it was probably about a school year, maybe a touch more than that. Uh, but it certainly wasn't like a first, second, third grade sort of setup um, to his schooling. Interestingly, uh, what people um, remember Lincoln for in school uh, was that he would write um, about cruelty to animals. He would he was he did not like cruelty to animals, um, and a lot of his early writing in school um, was against that which in the frontier was probably strange because cruelty to animals was was kind of normal or common um and it was you know it was and not even not even from a hunting standpoint but just from like a hobby standpoint because you know, what else were they going to do i suppose um he also um was known for um chastising his playmates for cruelty to their peers um so um, and, and, and who knows how much of this is apocryphal, but this is based, This is from recollections of his playmates back in those days at school. Um, like, for example, and I love this story, there was a student named James Grigsby um, who, had a, who had a bad stutter. Um, and there was uh, classmates who were tormenting him for his stutter. Um, and Abraham Lincoln took, took care of him. And when the rough boys teased me and made fun of, um, made fun of him for stuttering, uh, Abe showed them how wrong it was, and most of them quit, uh, is what he said. So he was kind of emerging as a leader, but a leader for good, even as a child, which I just think that is um, such a great story. And this is from a record from James Grigsby himself, who 
uh, was quite proud of uh, the fact that Abraham Lincoln had stood up for him when he was being made fun of for having a stutter. And of course, that tells us quite a lot about who the man Abraham Lincoln uh, would eventually become. Interestingly, too, one other subject that he tended to write on from time to time was temperance. Um, so <laughs> um, he was not a teetotaler, in, at least in policy. Uh, he was not a big drinker, but he did write about temperance in school, which is kind of a weird thing for like a 10 or 11 year old to write about. But nonetheless, uh, he did. Um, and one other thing just about his schooling that he was very poor at and he was poor at for his entire life. He was a terrible speller. Uh, Abraham Lincoln did not spell very well for his entire life. Now, we see a lot of his writing, and obviously, like, the handwritten Gettysburg Address, everything is spelled correctly. Um, but there, are, um, he did struggle with spelling in his law career, um, and he um, had, a, had definitely had a hard time as a young person uh, with with spelling. Um, but part, I think, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, but I think back then that might have been something that was more common too, because they seem to spell phonetically. Like I've read, um, or I've seen letters that um, I think it was that Grant has written and Sherman had written, and it was the same kind of phonetic sort of spelling. And you don't see it all the time, but I sometimes wonder if they're writing hastily that they're just like sounding it out in their head, and they're like, "Okay, hey, this is how it gets spelled." And um, I think one word that Lincoln never spelled right was was Sumter. Oh yeah, important yeah. something. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and um, like he in eighteen sixty, as late as eighteen sixty four, he talked about his weakness as a speller. He said, "When I write an official letter, I want to be sure it is correct, and I find I am sometimes puzzled to know how to spell the most common word. I found about twenty years ago that I had been spelling one word wrong all my life up to that time. It is very." I used to always spell it with two R's, V-E-R-R-Y. And then there was another word which I found I had been spelling wrong until I came to the White House, and it was opportunity. I had always spelled it per P-E-R-tunity. So there were, you know, he, he's kind of bringing up examples as late as 1864. Um, another example that he gave earlier, actually in 1865, he was talking to uh, Judge David Davis, um, and, and he said, I never knew until the other day how to spell the word maintenance. I always thought it was M A I N main tain T A I N tain ants A N C E maintenance, um, but I find that it is maintenance. So, you know, he's we have documented accounts of him talking about his poor spelling, and I think Mary, you're absolutely right. It probably came from him speaking colloquially, and his pronunciation of words was um, probably not the same as a lot of New Englanders, and they probably spell mm-hmm. things differently, but. For the, the fact that one of those brilliant writers and orators um, and thinkers in American history, up until he was the president of the United States, of course now it sounds a little more believable, but uh, the president of the United States didn't know how to spell the word very. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> man, if you had sent an email in 2018, man, teachers would be like, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> What a moron he is! Don't you know what that little squiggly red line is? When you I love them? like like teachers like they read emails and it's like that is the ultimate test of a person's IQ is they don't have one freaking grammar mistake in an email. Drives me nuts. I'm definitely not one of those because I can't spell. I have no idea where a damn comma goes, except for the Oxford comma. I'm an Oxford comma guy. I am an Oxford comma guy too. 
Uh, it is intimidating writing an email to an English teacher. Uh, I'll, I will say that. It feels oh, like, I, yeah. yeah, I would not. I mean, I write emails all the time to, uh, like, to the different librarians and sometimes oh. I type them really quickly and then I always put like smile like like emoticons in them like smiley faces and stuff and like actually they seem to like they'll write me back to me like hi smiley face or whatever but yeah sometimes like if I'm writing to the director of cultural services I'm like oh I gotta make this good <laughs> like, so you just go walk down there and t talk to them that's what I would do with an English teacher <laughs> I'm just gonna come <laughs> to you so and then I'm sure I speak totally, I totally speak uh, not proper grammar. Yeah. Like how I work there. <laughs> I do, I do grammar. Work, like, yeah, it's, it's just intimidating in general. Our English teachers are very kind and hopefully yeah. for the most no, part. No, they're not. They're terrible. I'm just joking. Yeah, see, Nick's in a luxury. He can have beef with people, but I can't. Um, <laughs> no, it's... Um, they're pretty they, good, actually. English yeah, and I've, they've never actually graded my an email and sent it back. They probably just passive-aggressively talk about it when I'm not in the room. Not kidding. They... <laughs> Maybe. Oh, no. That definitely happens. <laughs> I'm just joking. Yeah. Did you see uh, that email he sent? See, and that's my other thing. And, I, you know, Lincoln obviously communicated with lots of people. But, like, when I, I send emails to, like, because I have to email the whole staff from time to time. So, that goes up to, like, 120 people. And many times I've had to send one, like, a minute later. Like, I meant to say, you know, that's not what I meant to say. I didn't bother proofreading, you know, and. That's embarrassing. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I do spell very correctly, but maybe I'll throw in an extra R every now and then just to be more Lincoln-esque. Just so I know and everybody else thinks you're an idiot. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's an inside joke. Just so, I can, just so I can give Nick the chance to be like, actually, Abraham Lincoln used to spell it with two R's. And, and, uh, and Burns, because he's an avid follower. That's right, yeah. Mr. Burns from the PE department at our freshman campus, which is soon to... Uh, be reunified. <laughs> the funny part, he's in PE, so he probably already thinks it's spelled with two R's. Oh, come on. Oh. Come on. <laughs> uh, he's probably the most well read PE teacher in the United States. I'm willing right. to go out I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that. No offense to PE teachers. Mr. Burns is a very smart guy. Alright, so uh, we have Lincoln and he is in Indiana. And of course, we will I think we can all agree the most famous teacher in Abraham Lincoln's life. Uh, would have been his stepmother who who handled most of his teaching. And I think that that is the, I don't think it's overlooked. I think a lot of people acknowledge that, but I think a lot of people separate that from his education when they say like, oh no, he had no education whatsoever. Like that's education when you're, you know, sitting with a parent and the parent is teaching you things and he learned how to read and she had him write and she helped him write. Like that's education, that's teaching and learning. Um, so I do think that that's often, um, undervalued as far as what that meant for Lincoln and that that was education. And that is, I think, something that separated him from other frontier folks who didn't have that, um, that at the, at the home. And um, I think we talked about it on our Mother's Day episode, just how vital that relationship was to his development as a writer and a thinker and a, a leader, um, especially in consideration of his father not being, um, that that presence for him, um, at least academically. Uh, I, I do want to bring up one point here. Um, like, you know, there's kind of three main components to when you're learning, you know, taking in the knowledge, being able to think critically and work with that, and then to express it. Um, and he was very gifted at expressing. I think part of that comes from his father, who has been documented as being a fantastic storyteller. So um, whether his daughter, I mean his daughter, his father, whether his father was formally teaching it, 
definitely wasn't happening, but he was gaining that knowledge on how to tell a story that will really become part like that third component to what he really needed and really what he becomes a master of in a sense too. I think that's a great point. Um, mm-hmm. And that, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, it was a Freud or whatever psychologist said, like there's always, you always like end up becoming your parents. And I think that element of his father was so deeply instilled in him, the telling of the jokes and the telling of the stories and the, um, and his father probably did. Well, I mean, he had a talent for it, but he didn't have any other way to express himself. He didn't, wasn't able to write a letter uh, by all accounts. Um, so yeah, I think that that, that probably too is undervalued. I think that's a great point, Nick. And I think too, like Lincoln also had this ability as goes back to his ability to tell, to tell stories. He was able to reach so many different people with his words to make them understand what he was saying. He was able to put it in different ways for people to make them understand something. And that to me is something that not everybody is able to do. And I think that comes from his, like just his ability to how he was able to critically think about stuff and then think, okay, this is my audience. Here's how I need to put it to them. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, an element of his genius that I think is extremely important to highlight. Mm -hmm. Um, because I'm fascinated by people like that who are brilliant you know, and I, you know, yeah, he couldn't spell very well. And that's, you know, that does, I think that's spelling is often over emphasized as an indication of, well, it never indicates how smart you are, but it always seems to indicate that you, how not smart you are. Um, but I think people who are very sophisticated and at that genius level, um, folks like that who are able to communicate to everyone, I think that is so key because that's something that Lincoln has. Uh, Lincoln had, I think, like Barack Obama has something similar, um, and I think that unfortunately a lot of folks will want to vote for somebody like that old saying, like I want to vote for somebody I feel like I can have a beer with, or like he, I feel like he relates to me. Um, so like it, the, the 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 unique characteristic of being able to have that, like yes, I feel like he can relate to me, or she can relate to me, but also I know that if there's a major problem, they're smart enough to figure it out. Um, there are. I think that those are the, the, the type of um, genius, you know, um, scholars or academics or whatever that become most accessible and successful. I think like Neil deGrasse Tyson's another example of someone who is obviously qualified in his field, but can speak to people who are not scientists in a way, even about science in a way that makes it relatable and interesting and can use stories and um, compare, you know, like he just has a way of communicating that I think is very similar where Lincoln was similar, where, you know, he could quote Shakespeare off the cuff. He knew the entire Bible. He knew Euclid, but like he could explain it. If you know, imagine trying to explain geometry to somebody who wasn't necessarily interested in math as a way of proving a point. And the way that he did it was like, it made sense and it worked like that is talent. Like not many people can do that, especially people who know what they're talking about because, it, it gets wonky and nerdy and technical and people shut down because like, why, you know, what, what are you even talking about? Um, I just admire that so much. And I think, um, you know, the two, I think the two biggest figures that have that skill are Lincoln and Obama because, you know, Obama has, a you know, obviously a law degree from Harvard, was president of the Harvard Law Review, was a constitutional law professor at the University of Chicago, one of the most prestigious schools, at least in the Midwest. Yet when he talked about the law and he talked about policy you 
it was relatable and understandable. And he wasn't dumbing anything down. He wasn't like offending people or patronizing people. Um, and neither was Lincoln. It's just a just just such a great way to communicate. So uh, we got what he learned from his mother, what he learned from his father, and then of course, I suppose you could say the other extremely important teacher in Lincoln's life was Lincoln himself. Um, so moving on from his formative years into his adolescence, um, there's really uh, no doubt that he spent quite a lot of time educating himself. Um, he practiced the, the letters of the alphabet whenever and however he could. He would carve letters on slabs of wood or tree trunks. Um, he would use charcoal to write. So I think one of the um, most compelling parts about his education was his investment in his own education, even as a young person, because he had you know significant gaps between schooling where he would, um, like Mary said, he'll read whatever whenever chance he could get, but he was also he'd also practice um, writing. Um, and it almost felt like there was this nascent desire in him to get past this frontier life and to be successful. Um, and I think that um, it would be a mistake to think that it was like a, a, a jump from uh, stepmother taught him how to read and then he bought some law books and that was it. <laughs> you know, like it, it was so much more than that. Um, and his education was really ongoing, especially when you think about like when did he read? Because there's no real documented, like he was obsessed with Shakespeare for a while. So then he could quote like he would, he just kind of was able to do all these things. And as a, as an adult, and we read a lot about his failures in business and you know his fledgling law career. Um, but so, throughout all of that, he's he was sharpening the blade, so to speak, and and really preparing um, to be this 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 just extremely brilliant person. Yeah, I mean, he was extremely motivated self-learner. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's that way all the way through his life. I mean, you know, he goes to New Salem. He's joining the debate society. He's studying mathematics, literature, getting into law. Heck, maybe like volunteering even for the Black Hawk War is a different type of, you know, um, learning process. And then, you know, then he's staying with Speed and Springfield. We talk about this, like that intellectual circle that they were part of every night. You know, that, that's putting yourself out there, especially with um, how much he participated in all of it. Um, to even once he got to the White House, um, you know, he's going to the Library of Congress, getting books, reading up about war strategy, um, you know, recommending stuff to his generals. So it, it, he just continued to stay a self-learner the entire life. And, you know, um, and he was just motivated to do it and disciplined enough to do it. I mean, he always... I think Speed had a quote when I was we researched for the article, paraphrasing, but something along the line, like if he didn't understand it and it caught his interest, he was going to research it and figure out how it worked or how that thing got done, just kind of showing you just the, the discipline that he had. And he would also go out there and try to solve other things. I mean, what, he's the only president to have a patent, right? Yeah. So, I mean, to me, that's the most impressive thing. It's just how motivated discipline he was to continue to be a self-learner. Yeah, well, that's what impresses me about him, too. You know, there's this whole, like, thing, like, where he reads Euclid. Like, that is something that, I mean, I I love to learn, I love to read, but I would not tackle Euclid. And he tackled Euclid, and he understood it. And that's one of the things that I admire about him, is he just, he kept learning throughout his entire life. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, that that motivates me to keep learning. 
as well and to never stop. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. And I think that um, looking at how he did that and why he did it, I think helps us learn about education, kind of like, you know, that meta education, learning about learning. Um, because, and we're getting away from it a little bit now, I think, in the education world, but it's, at least in the United States, and the way I was kind of brought up through the educational system, it was very much kind of drilled into us that the purpose of education was preparation like you you were preparing for some sort of career and like Mm -hmm. the motivation was always like you need to get a job at some point so if you don't learn this you know like that was the motivator if you don't learn this you're going to end up with with some menial job which to me does two things it kind of demeans people who have those jobs while also telling you that the point of learning this is employment is employability so and that was always kind of just so much a part of the whole educational system and it still is to a huge extent but when you look at lincoln all of his learning had a purpose that was that in a small way but it was also about growth you know like many times it it had you know it wasn't about preparing for a job it was about doing that job better it was about being a better person so like yeah he read a bunch of law books to become a lawyer but then he never stopped you know he joined the debate team and he would research his debates like it was there was never an end to it where he's like okay now i am qualified to do this right it was always more and more and more so like he was elected he was the president elect and he realized he needed to learn <laughs> about warfare and so he picked up a bunch of books, about, and so he read and taught himself as much as he possibly could about warfare, which to me is just so fascinating because even now when we would think about it, like how would you prepare to be, you know, to take on this huge task? Like you talk to people for sure, you'd bring in advisors, but I don't know if anybody would suggest like, well, you're just going to have to learn. Like you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to prepare and you're going to have to learn, you know, so like his education, the functionality of it was so much about personal growth and then being able to apply it as opposed to just like acquiring something at one stage, stopping and then starting this other stage where you like use it, which is this big myth about education, um, I think in general. And, you know, that cliche is kind of a cliche lifelong learner, um, but he embodies like why why that's a, an important thing. It's not just because learning is a good endeavor. It's because... Um, it's, it's about growth and you can actually become a better person and a better leader and a better whatever by engaging in that growth. And even in our profession, I think sometimes it's like nerdy to talk about articles and education and our craft and our jobs, you know, and, you know, I don't, I think Lincoln would show that that's not that, you know, he, he very much engaged in growth throughout his entire career. No. Yeah. Go ahead, Mary. No, I was going to say, I, I completely agree. And it's the same way in Canada, too, where it's like you're learning for a certain job or like a career. And, um, you know, growing up, the one thing that people always ask me was like, well, what are you going to do with studying all this stuff about Lincoln and the Civil War? And I, my response was just like, well, I enjoy it. And I think that's what Lincoln did, too, with some of the stuff, like, you know, like when he read Euclid, that it was just something he enjoyed and he wanted to do. And then he applied it in just yeah, great ways. exactly, yeah. yeah. And some of that stuff that you learn kind of outside of what might be your career is what helps you in that career, helps you in life, or helps you analyze stuff 
a little bit better. Um, and that's why I'm a huge advocate of lifelong learning is because you never know when you're going to bring all that stuff in that you've been reading about. Mm-hmm. I hear that. I bring WWE into the classroom all the time. It's perfect. <laughs> so much you can learn from it. Everybody gets a network. Nine ninety nine SummerSlam this Sunday. <laughs> we need to get him as an advertiser for the show. I think so too. So, and I, I hope Nick was happy. Our our team decided to structure the whole first day around wrestling. This is true. Oh, um, yeah. We... I I did appreciate that. I didn't see it in the group text till later, and there was another conversation going on. So I, I did appreciate that. So, but yeah, so our theme, uh, one of our themes this year is it's like, it's kind of hokey, but be a champion. Every kid deserves a champion. So sometime this year, Real Splitter Nick might end up with the championship belt that we are now circulating around our staff for people who are championing our kids. So I can't wait to see what his walk-up music is going to be to come get the belt. <laughs> I get to pick it? Yeah, that's gonna that's a, that's a that's a real splitter exclusive, a surprise for everybody. When you win it, you get to pick your music. So uh, we had so some. Two, so two members of the faculty know. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Me, me and Mr. Burns. That's right. <laughs> that's right. We might have some others. Who knows? Um, so anyway, I feel like I kind of talked a lot uh, so far. What what did your guys' research uh, come up with as far as Lincoln and education? Oh, what else did I have to add? Um, oh, I put something like kind of his style. I think he was very good at like incorporating like everything that he learned from his father to the books to, you know, his problem solving. Um, and he was able to use that to really, when he presented something or he made a case for stuff, he just didn't, he always had like an argument with substance behind it. It just wasn't catchphrases or phrases to get people. Now, he might hook you with a story, which you see several times in, you know, the movie Lincoln we've talked about. Um, but then he always had, you know, he did in-depth research because of uh, this stuff. And he did have logical arguments to back it up. And I think that was just kind of the being the song that he was. He was able to do that. And he didn't have to rely on catchphrases um, to get his stuff across. Totally agree. That's that's an awesome point. And then I think that's it, really. That I'm scrambling to do all this, to be honest. <laughs> um, and the fact that he was a life learner, I, I think that leads his evolution, his mm-hmm. evolution to change. Um, definitely what which you see, and we talked about with the issue of slavery and some other stuff. And, and I think that is because he was a self learner and looking to better himself. And I believe that's what helped contribute to his evolution as a human, as a politician, and as a president. Yeah, and I think that um, we've, you know, kind of uh, our, our thesis here, I suppose, is that his education was made him who he was, and it wasn't quite the, like, no education that, that he sometimes is purported to have had. I do think that his lack of formal education bothered him not necessarily in a self-conscious way but in a way where he valued education so deeply especially later in life looking back on the opportunities that he did not have probably caused a little bit of a resentment for him uh, later in his life he referred to his education as defective um, and he did a, and he estimated that the time spent in school was less than a year um, 
but he also had heroes like Henry Clay, who also had you know little to no formal schooling, um, and basically said that like on the frontier there was absolutely nothing to excite ambition for education. Um, and he said by by twenty one, he said somehow I could read, write, and cipher to the rule of three, but that was all. So I think there's a little bit of a resentment in him for that, and I think that you can extrapolate from that. Um, that may have fueled his abolition, his abolitionist um, beliefs, um, because he wasn't he wasn't a politician at the time where he could have championed compulsory public education for all. He could not have advocated for K twelve education, especially for low income folks. Like that just wasn't a political issue of the day. It wasn't an issue for him even to get behind. It wasn't even an idea, really yet to to really have the public school system that we have now. But I think he did notice the vast difference in opportunity for people who grew up like him and people who grew up with wealth and for people who were enslaved. And those two, you know, poles, those two opposites and where he stood in that spectrum, I think did fuel his human rights beliefs, his beliefs about um, who should have access to what, um, and I think you can you can extrapolate quite a lot of you know what he felt about um, his want for education and how he he kind of had to supply it on his own, and how he felt that was that was just not right and, and unfair. There's a really good quote um, from 1832 where Lincoln talks about that where. Um, he says, upon the subject of education, not presuming to dictate any plan or system respecting it, I can only say that I view it as the most important subject which we as people can be engaged in, that every man may receive at least a moderate education and thereby be enabled to read the histories of his own and other countries, by which he may duly appreciate the value of our free institutions, appears to be an object of vital importance, even on this account alone, to say nothing of the advantages and satisfaction to be derived from all being able to read the scriptures and other works, both of a religious and moral nature for themselves. I think, I love that quote. I actually have, I have cards. I like to give handwritten cards every now and then mm -hmm. at work. Um, and that's, I, there's Abraham Lincoln on the front. And then when you open up the, you know, in the middle of the card, it has that quote and not the whole thing, but the, um, education is a principle, which was the most important that we as people can be engaged in or whatever, however that was, was phrased. Um, I really, obviously I really like the quote, but I like, I think the first part of it, when he says, like, we as a people to be to be mm -hmm. engaged in, um, I take that to mean we as a nation, we as we as a collective to be engaged in. And, I'm, and a lot of this is because I'm a public educator, and obviously I believe deeply in the public education system. The last half of it, I think, is he, you know, kind of tempering it politically maybe to fit this idea of, um, you know, individualism and, you know, every, you know, he says man, but every person having the ability to read. Um, but I really like that, that we as a people can engage in. He doesn't say like, this is not like a do your homework kind of thing, or like you need to be engaged in your education. Him saying we as a people can be engaged in so that it is collective and it is something that a society does, that education is something that we all do as opposed to something that a person does. That's an important element of it for sure. And you, I think you, you, you need one, you have to have one in order to have the other. Um, but yeah, I, I do love that um, that we as a people can be engaged in, um, and I take I take that. I mean, as a public educator, that means a lot to me. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite Lincoln quotes. Um, 
And just the one thing that I found when I was doing my research was um, I kind of looked at how he valued education and some things that he might have done during his presidency that showed that. And the one thing that I found was uh, the Morrill Land Grant Act of 1862. And it was later, it was added to in 1890. But this act that he signed on July the 2nd, 1862, allowed for the creation of land grant colleges in the U.S. using the proceeds of federal land sales. Um, So as I said, the first part was enacted during Lincoln's presidency in 1862, and the second part in 1890, and it's also referred to as the Agricultural College Act of 1890. And so not, Lincoln kind of, like, the the act was, I think Lincoln had envisioned it, not only would these institutions teach scientific and classical studies, like, you know, kind of like at West Point and any other colleges that had been established, but also agriculture in order to promote the liberal and practical education of the industrial classes in several pursuits and professions in life. So the first land-grant institution was Kansas State University, established in February of 1863. Um, But my favorite, and I'm biased here, was established in 1870. The Ohio State University was a land-grant university. And it was originally called the Ohio Agricultural and Mechanical College. And I just thought that that one act was something that showed how Lincoln valued education and getting different types of education. So adding agriculture into that, you know, in addition to like classical studies and like science, like the medical schools, the law schools, uh, places like West Point where they taught military, um, just adding into that to allow people to do more with their lives. I, yeah, and I don't think that that contribution to to the education system in the United States can possibly be understated. Like the entire college system as we know it is structured like because prior to this, it's it's private schools for the elite. It's you know Ivy Leagues, very small amount of of colleges. Um, they're very small, very exclusive, um, and really this is a huge turning point for creating at the university level, public institutions of higher learning. Um, and that importance is just, it really cannot be understated. So if you, I mean, any sort of college education, um, including private schools, because private schools, you know, have, you know, now had another model, you know, competition in that regard helped a little bit. Um, but if you're any sort of fan of any college athletics, you have to thank Abraham Lincoln for creating land-grant colleges because, before that, there was no way there would be a, you know, a system of schools of, you know, 25 to 50,000 students creating this, these huge atmospheres and of, of um, competition. And then also the, you know, the research universities and all these other things like it just, um, it, it would not have happened. And even the scholarship at many of these schools prior to this was not research. The research wasn't happening there until the land grant colleges were able to create bigger systems in order to handle it. So um, we only have one here in, in Illinois, the University of Illinois. Um, however, because of that, we also have big public institutions. Nick went to one. I went to a different one. Like, we've got quite a lot of big public schools in Illinois, across the country. Um, there's the University, University of Illinois Springfield, among others. So um, hugely important contribution to education. Um, and, and what was at the time overlooked because we're in the midst of a civil war Um but yeah, very, very, very important, um, and I don't think it can be understated. Well, we can disagree about the Ohio State University, but 
I'm not, I don't really, I, I'm not a Michigan <laughs> fan, so I really don't have any reason. I don't, I, oh. I guess I'm more indifferent than anything, but <laughs> I like Illinois and their athletics are not great. They're garbage. Ohio State's garbage. Go Buckeyes. <laughs> garbage. <laughs> what would Fillmore say, Nick? See, Fillmore, cheer for the Buffalo. He would, he would. And I went to Northern Illinois University, which is uh, in the same conference as Buffalo University, which has got some ties to Miller Fillmore. So we are actually conference rivals uh, with with Buffalo. I believe they're actually, they might even be the Bills or something. Bulls, they're the Buffalo Bulls. Um, but yeah, they, they used to be terrible at everything, but I think their basketball program actually came around. So, uh, Illinois State, where I went, was founded by uh, Jesse Fowl, uh, Fowl, excuse me, and Abraham Lincoln would actually knew him, and he actually drafted the bond and bill of sale documents for the property that would become the university. So, yeah, Lincoln's got direct tie to ISU. That's cool. right. And yeah, my spouse graduated from there, so I used to call it I screwed up, but I can't call it that anymore. That's what I used to. ISU, I screwed up, yeah. <laughs> my apologies Whatever. to all the Redbirds out there. Redbird Nation going strong. Redbird Nation. So, um, yeah, and I do think that as far as like pub, like public policy, presidency wise, uh, the land grant was certainly the biggest uh, contribution that Lincoln made to education. Um, so hopefully you enjoyed kind of our trip that we took you through Lincoln's education, Lincoln's uh, kind of how he embodies what we hope to all be in learners, and then a little bit about his public policy contributions to uh to education, certainly public education. Um, so feel free to tweet us or join the Facebook group and talk about any of these issues. Go feel free to throw your favorite Big Ten team on there because I believe those are all land grant schools except for Northwestern. Um, and uh, and apparently Indiana University is also not a land grant school. But anyway, um, if you want to get in on this like very very mild mannered, good natured trash talking about <laughs> Big Ten <laughs> athletics, you're more than welcome to join us. Um, this week, uh, or actually not this week, but every week we have two weekly features. The first one is called Of the People by the People, where we share a favorite social media post of the week. Uh, do either one of you want to go first with that? I'd go first. Um, today I found on the Facebook thing, I was just looking at it, um, and I think it was John who posted this. And it's an article to, from the St. Louis Today, um, and basically it's talking about the Lincoln, the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Museum Foundation. They have put out there that they are seeking auctioneers to sell um, some items from the ta- uh, the Tapper or Taper. What's the proper way to say it? I think it's Taper. Collection. Taper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're still $9.7 million short. October to- uh, 2019 is the money due. So... Um, this doesn't mean necessarily that it's a done deal, but um, it's kind of seen. It's been in it. We've talked about it a couple times. That's the two main things from that collection are the blood stained gloves and a top hat, which is believed that Lincoln wore. So mm-hmm. not even 100% certain on that. A um, little background: it was purchased 2007, 25 million dollars. They had to borrow 23 million, um, and they're just they're kind of chipping away. There's a GoFundMe page out there, $10,000 have been contributed to that for 213 people. 
So I think this is kind of a political move to put some, give them some leverage, put some pressure on uh, some different things, it sounds like, um, in the state of Illinois. I guess there's something out there. What did I see here? I got of sum this down. There's a $5 million like set aside in like a tourism promotion fund um, that the paper mentioned might be an avenue to help with some of that hoping that they put that up and then that leads to more public uh, private donors. So in the news, I think it's kind of fascinating. I think uh, Dr. McDermott brought up an interesting point on how the foundation went and got this and why are you paying this much? You don't even have official documentation that he did wear the hat. I mean, there's, there's a lot of fascinating stuff with this, I think. So I think, I think so too. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's all kinds of avenues to go with it. Like I, I really want to go down the Indiana Jones road and just say like, these things belong in a museum. They don't belong in personal collections. Yeah. Um, I just, my hope is that somebody, they can afford $9.7 million. Cause that's not a huge amount of money for the very, very rich. I'm hoping I'm looking at you, Steven Spielberg. Um, just cut the check, man. Just, you know, you know, give us the 9.7, <laughs> keep it where it belongs in Springfield, Illinois. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I feel like selling it off is a, is a irreversible solution mm-hmm. to this problem. Um, and it just, I, I can't imagine the type of person that would spend that to own it. And, and you know, I mean, it just, it belongs in the museum and, and I have no problem whatsoever when I'm in a museum and there's a little thing in the corner of the write-up that says property of or donated by or thanks to, and then the person who spent all the money on it, you know, like it can still be yours, I suppose, but keep it in the museum where it belongs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that those things really should be up to people to go with the brand of this little, this here segment. I agree. Mary, I agree. I also think you're... There's a fascinating element to this too, the purchasing of artifacts um, for, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and how that's done, which I think is underlining all this, that we don't quite have all the, the, the facts to, which I find very fascinating. Yeah. Um, but sorry to me to cut you off there. No, I was going to say the purchasing of artifacts. Um, I once worked in the museum field and like the purchasing of artifacts, at least in Canada, is something that's kind of like, kind of shady whether you do it because you don't know where they're coming from. So um, most of the museums in Canada rely on donations. There's not too many purchases that are made at all. And there's not a lot of auctioning that goes on either um, with stuff. And that's how it should be. Mm -hmm. It's so crazy, especially with like sports stuff now. That's like such a craze and like, you know, and then the people who get obsessed with like making the other making people write their name on it, like I just it's just so yeah. strange to me that like that's the personal connection that you want to have. Like, hey, I have this this jersey with your name. Like, if you could write your name on it, it would add the value to it, as opposed to like having a conversation and just saying like, hey, I'd like to thank you for <laughs> for doing what you do or whatever. But anyway, I mean, to me, I, I don't think you can put a price on anything from history especially something, you know, like to do with Lincoln or the Civil War or whatever, just other areas of history too. Like you can't really put a price on it because people can learn so much from it. And it's all we, sometimes all we have from that time period, Mm -hmm. you know. The one, and I think we've talked about this in the show, the one little example of this very thing happening that I do kind of enjoy, I think it's kind of an endearing story is when 
Edward Everett's copy of the Gettysburg Address was up for sale. They did a penny drive throughout Illinois where school children put in spare change, put in their pennies, um, and then they raised like 20% of the money or something, and Marshall Field paid for the rest of it kind of discreetly. Um, so like it was kind of like we, like Illinois bought this, and it's for, you know, now it belongs to Illinois, when really there was a giant benefactor also, but, but we all, you know, the, mm-hmm. this was obviously well before I was born, but, you know, pe- kids got to feel like they contributed, which was kind of cool. That's very cool. All right, Mary, did you have a social media post? I do. This one uh, comes to us from, I've, we've, I think all had, uh, you know, social media posts from him. Lincoln Belongs to the Ages uh, tweeted something really interesting today. It was an article about um, this mobile library um, that goes around um, be his area of Ohio, so the Canton area. Um, and it happens to, one of its stops is a juvenile detention center where it visits bi- biweekly. And it also makes other stops elsewhere to give people access to books and other library services that they might not otherwise have easy access to. As somebody that loves reading and also works in a library, this article made me really happy um, to read this. I thought it was very positive. Um, so at the detention center, um, the kids are reading more in their downtime, which is great. And... Um, there's been a book club started with two groups, 12 students in each, and it's going to start in September where they're like, they're doing the book club thing. Um, the other thing about this post is that Lincoln belongs to the ages. Um, he's also at Mr. Lincoln on Twitter. He had a really cool Lincoln quote, and I think it ties in perfectly, um, not only with reading, but also with education too. So what we were talking about in the show. Um, a capacity and taste for reading gives access to whatever has already been discovered by others. It is the key or one of the keys to the already solved problems. And not only so, it gives a relish and facility for successfully pursuing the yet unsolved ones. And this was a quote that uh, from a speech Lincoln gave on September 30th, 1859 uh, to the Wisconsin State Agricultural Society. Cool. I like it. Uh, mine, uh, my social media post was from uh, uh Someone I follow on tw- on the uh, Railsplitter Twitter account named Lance Mosier. Um, his ha- Twitter handle is at Mosier underscore Histgeek, like History Geek, Histgeek. Um, this is very simple. You guys were a little bit more Lincoln and a little more, a little deeper than mine. I just thought he posted a really cool photo. Uh, today was also his first day of school. He's a teacher in Omaha, and he just showed an open door to his classroom, which I think is just kind of a cool image. Uh, but he's got Frederick Douglass uh, posted outside his door, and then like a cardboard cutout of Lincoln. Uh, in the corner of his classroom in the distance so um kind of a cool picture just of a you know beginning of the year i like his style with the whole lincoln thing um apparently their name plates are much more sophisticated than ours because it looks like he's got a giant metal nameplate with his name above his classroom door but uh mr Mosier, i hope you're having a great start to your school year with your eighth graders um and it's you know glad to have you in the club of educators and uh, keep fighting the good fight so i thought that was just a very cool and welcoming image for his students and we all can kind of relate to that idea that first day of school excitement slash nervousness slash you know summer's over doldrum all that kind of stuff but um it's a fun time of year uh our super or sorry our principal secretary who kind of you know principal secretaries it's pretty well known run buildings um she called me weird yesterday because i said i liked the first day of school she's a little snarky <laughs> so. i used to love i used to love the first day of school mm-hmm. You got your you got your new supplies. You get to meet yep. Mr. Stangy. 
Yeah. I'm sure I was the best part of their day today. Hashtag Team Nick. Yeah, that's right. right. So <laughs> I I asked them all who's your favorite rail splitter, and believe it or not, they said me. So yeah. that's like 150 kids right there. All right. I guess, man, I need to meet those kids. Yeah. So, all right. <laughs> and I hope one of you has an example for this week in Lincoln because I do not. This week in Lincoln is our weekly feature where we talk about an example of Abraham Lincoln showing up somewhere other than a history book or a documentary film or something like that, usually in pop culture. My explanation was hopefully enough of a stall for my coworkers to come up with a, a uh, This Week in Lincoln. The best suppository is hashtag Lincoln Lunacy, which is not ours. It is Dr. Stacy's, and it is awesome. What do we got? I can uh, pull something out of the hat. All right. Out of, yeah, out of the old top I'm gonna, hat. I'm going to let Nick. <laughs> I saw and Eric Lee posted a Facebook site. This was uh, August 7th. And it was from the display, the Cubs Cardinals exhibit that was at the, you know, the Lincoln Museum down there. And it is a baseball card where it says Abe on the front. On the back, it says, like, it's like a baseball card set up. So, I uh, I did not get a chance to go see that traveling exhibit, I don't think, when I was – or, yeah, no, I did. Yeah, I did see that. I didn't see the baseball card, so I don't know why I missed that, but it's cool looking. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's set up, and it has, like, his nickname in the back, Rail Splitter, there, too. So, um, yeah, it's just a cool little thing. Kind of breaks down, like, you know how you get the stats on baseball cards? It kind of breaks down the year and what team he was. So the political party and what office he was in. So, I mean, what he ran for, it actually has a win-loss mark there. So um, kind of a cool thing. Thought it looked cool. Uh, need to get my get a hand on one of those somehow. So Dr. Cornelius, if you're listening to it, you know, to send that to Harlem High School, One Husky Road, Chesney Park. That's right. 6 11, 15. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we hope you enjoyed this back-to-school episode. If those of you who are starting school years, best of luck to you in your educational endeavors. We do say back to school, but I think as Abraham Lincoln provides us examples, learning never stops and it all it never starts. It is an ongoing process, so hopefully we can learn like Lincoln as we kind of embark upon this journey called education. So uh, once again, we hope you have enjoyed today's show about education. Uh, for Rail Splitter Mick and Rail, Rail Splitter Nick and Rail Splitter Mary, I am Rail Splitter Jeremy signing off for this week and reminding you to continue to walk the world with malice toward none and charity for all. And we will see you next week.